Good morning. Well, the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is a motto that we often use for the purposes of uh, self-help. Uh, self, we want to inspire self-initiative in others. It's, it's meant to inspire self-effort. And although the phrase has often been attributed to Benjamin Franklin because he published it in Poor Richard's Almanac, it actually comes from Algernon Sidney, uh, those actual words. If you've watched any of the PBS documentary, the Kinsburn documentary on uh, Benjamin Franklin that was just published in the last year, you know that uh, Benjamin Franklin didn't always cite his sources in Poor Richard's Almanac. Uh, but it comes, uh, th that whole idea, those exact words come from Algernon Sidney and earlier. But the actual idea goes way back into ancient times. It goes all the way back to the Greeks who said it this way, the gods help those who help themselves. And my question this morning is, what should we make of this extra-biblical English proverb uh, that we use? Uh, it's not in the Bible, and yet it claims to speak about those who help God. It portrays or who God loves to help. It portrays God in a certain way. I suppose on the one hand, we could say that the Bible does emphasize personal responsibility and a strong work ethic, right? Paul said to the Thessalonian church, uh, our motto while we were among you was, if any man doesn't work, neither shall he eat. I mean, uh, there is uh, that sense of self-initiative, taking responsibility. Uh, that is uh, certainly in Scripture. And yet, on the other hand, we would need to say that the Bible often portrays God helping people who can't help themselves. Uh, that's what His grace is all about. So, what should we do with this proverb? Well, instead of me descending into some lecture about what we can affirm but what we must deny uh, about this proverb, I'd like to give you a different proverb to replace it. I'd like to give you a biblical uh, proverb, one that doesn't need caveats and definitions and, and parsing what we can affirm and deny. I want to give you a motto whose foundation is laid on the solid ground of what God has actually revealed about Himself. And for that, I'd like to call your attention to Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 4. I've chosen this passage because there was a powerful moment in my life, a moment when I was uh, in a very formative stage where I discovered a verse about how, who God likes to help. I was in seminary at the time. I was studying Hebrew, and I had to translate these verses. And the fact that I had to translate them made me slow down and wrestle with the words and think about what they were saying instead of just sort of reading over them. And what I found was revolutionary for me at the time. Uh, though it is true that God is gathering worshipers for Himself, right? The Father is looking for those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. By that, we should not misunderstand that God is gathering workers to Himself who will work for His cause. God's greatness is not shown in the amount of workers He recruits, but in the way that He works for those who are His people. Consider these verses for a moment on that theme. Second Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. What is God looking for when He looks about the earth? Well, one thing He's looking for is people whose hearts are completely His. Why? So that He can take the opportunity to show off His power helping those 
people. Or consider Psalm 50, verse 15, where God says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will honor me. That captures in a nutshell how God works for His people. He rescues us. He helps us. We get the help we need. He gets the glory. He gets the credit. Uh, The other day, I was in our kitchen, and uh, Brooke asked for my help. There was a jar she couldn't get open. And so, of course, you know, I opened the jar and gave it to her, and uh, she, she came to me and, and just said, very, she took the jar and she said, thank you, and very sweetly said, you're so strong. And I thought to myself, I like this. <laughs> this is a good arrangement right here, right? Uh, Brooke gets the help she needs making a delicious meal for the family. I get credit for being strong. I, I was ready to go look on the internet for like uh, businesses that make jars that are hard to open and start buying that kind of spaghetti sauce, you know, like this is a, this is a good deal. Well, that's an imperfect illustration of how it works with God and His people. We call on Him when we need help. He does wonders on our behalf. We get the help we need. We get the joy. He gets the honor and glory and credit. The Apostle Paul said it this way to the Athenians, God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything, because He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And so, as we think about service, the point of the sermon today is get your service right. Understand service. God is the one who serves His people. Uh, It is true, I need to be balanced, in the Bible, there is language used of people serving God. Of course, you have like priests, for instance, in the temple who serve, or Moses. Moses is called a servant of the Lord. It's not that people don't serve God. But we need to understand who does the majority of the service. We don't serve God as though He needed our help. It's not that we're doing Him a favor. He's the one who gives us life, breath, and health uh, and every good thing, and then out of that, we then return to serve Him. Our God is a God who works on behalf of His people, and Isaiah 64 reveals to us a particular kind of person God loves working on behalf of. Follow along with me while I read Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 4. Uh, Isaiah, and I, I confess, we are parachuting into the middle of a couple chapters. Isaiah here is giving a prayer to the Lord, and this is his prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for Him." What I'd like to do this morning is break these verses down into a two-part outline. In verses 1 through 2, you see a a prayer that Isaiah offers God to intervene. And then in verses 3 and 4, the prayer continues, but we learn something by listening in on the prayer. We learn something about who God is. Let's look first at at Isaiah's prayer for God to intervene. Again, in verses 1 and 2, Isaiah says, 
Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. Uh, There is a context here, and to understand the context of why Isaiah is praying this prayer, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 63, and I believe you actually have to read all the way through Isaiah 65. We obviously don't have time for that, so let me do my best to summarize it. Here's the context of the prayer. The people of Judah in Isaiah's day have experienced a kind of self-inflicted defeat. Their own sins have brought them into ruin and made them the ridicule uh, of the surrounding nations. And, And Isaiah is saying in these chapters, Isaiah is saying in essence to God, we deserve all that you've brought upon us, but is this how you want, is this what you want? Is this how you want the story to end? Your witness nation broke your covenant that you made with Moses, and, and, and we deserve the discipline we're getting from you, but then all the Gentile nations mock us. Is this just the end of the story? Like, no, intervene. And what he's asking God to do is intervene and deal with the sins of his people to help them become the righteous witness nation they should be to the Gentiles. He's pleading with God to intervene because he knows that only God's direct intervention can break the power of Judah's sin and make them into the righteous nation God designed them to be. And so, what, what Isaiah is asking God to do in verses 1 and 2 is to rend the heavens and appear visibly in power and make the mountain shake. He's asking God to come like a fire and purge the unclean lips of Judah and burn up the brushwood of their idolatry and bring their lukewarm hearts to a rolling boil with the fire of His presence. Isaiah's goal is that uh, the adversaries of Judah would see God's power and holiness and tremble, but if you read the rest of the chapter, you know he's not just wanting them to tremble because they're Judah's enemies and he wants to see them get theirs. That's not what's going on. He wants the Gentiles to see God's power and holiness and be brought to a point where they tremble in, in His presence in fear understanding they need to get right with God. Uh, uh, If you read the rest of the chapter, what you'll see is that Isaiah wants the Gentiles to be brought to a point of trembling before God, not in some kind of weird sense that Isaiah wants vengeance on them. No, no, no. He wants them to tremble so that they would turn to God and find the same grace He has. If you remember earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah had a vision of God that made him tremble when he saw God's holiness, and it was part of what God used to save and sanctify him, and he's asking for that same experience to happen to the Gentiles. And at the end of the day, what that would mean is this. Judah receives the help they need with their sin. They become the righteous witness nation to Yahweh they should be. The Gentiles are brought to tremble and understand the terrible place their sin has put them in in relationship to the Creator God, and then they turn to God and find grace. And Isaiah continues the prayer in verses 3 and 4, but listen to this important lesson we learn about who God is and who He likes to help. In verse 3, Isaiah illustrates the kind of intervention he's asking God for based on what God has done in the past. He says, when you did awesome things, which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked, 
at your presence. I believe Isaiah is referring back here to what God did at Sinai. Uh, In Exodus chapter 19, we read this, Uh, it came about on the third day after the, the nation of Israel had come to Mount Sinai, it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. At Sinai, the glory of God appeared on the top of the mountain in an unmistakable way where everybody understood that God's presence was there, and they trembled. They took notice and trembled. And that's what Isaiah wants to see happen for Judah and for the Gentile nations. And then verse 4, Isaiah says uh, why he's praying this prayer. Uh, Let me turn back there. Verse 4, 4. Uh, because, here's why I'm praying this prayer, because from days of old, they, the Gentiles, have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you, who acts on behalf of the one who waits for Him. That Hebrew word, acts, uh, it's, it's a word that's used a lot in the Old Testament, and in various contexts, uh, the shades of meaning change not only to acts, but God working for, working on behalf of, or God giving help and aid and deliverance to people. And so, Isaiah's heart here is that the, ad, uh, the adversaries of Judah and all the Gentile nations of the world would see and understand that there's no God like Israel's God. If you compare Yahweh to the gods of the other… if, if you compare Yahweh to Molech and Chemosh and Baal and Bel and Nebo, what do you find? Well, all the so-called gods of the nations ask their people to serve them, bring food offerings to them, build them a temple for their uh, images to be housed in. But the God of Israel is different. Yes, He has created a temple, for his, but that was for His people to have a place where they could come and worship Him. It's not that God needed the temple. In fact, He is a God who uniquely serves His people. And with the time that remains… I want to reflect on how God helps those who wait for Him. That's the uh, proverb I'd like to give you instead of God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who wait for Him, Isaiah 64, 4. And I want to reflect on how God helps those who wait for Him and what it means for us to wait on God like this passage teaches. Well, so let's start first how does, uh, with how God helps those who wait for Him. I'd like to talk about three ways God helps those who wait for Him. He helps them uniquely, competently, and wisely. Now, when I say God uniquely helps those who wait for Him, all I'm doing really is restating the passage, right? I'm restating what Isaiah says in verse 4, no eye has seen a God like Yahweh who helps His people. Why? Because none of the other gods help their people. All the other pagan gods of the nations, inspired by demons, ask their people to work for them. Uh, But Yahweh helps His people, and whatever service uh, His people give back to Him, uh, it's it's all dependent and because of His prior work 
in their lives. Uh, This should not be surprising to us to think about our service this way, that yes, we render worship, and there are times where we serve God, maybe we volunteer uh, for uh, some official ministry function. There are ways where we make some sacrifices with our time and energy and serve God, but that's all dependent on God who first created us, sustains us, uh, blesses us, and we return service to Him out of the way He's already come and served us. This should not be uh, like a, a surprising kind of thought. And the reason I say that is, as New Testament Christians, we already understand that this is the way it works with God's love, right? Our love for God is always a love that is an I love you too love, right? Think about it. God says with His actions and His Word that He loves us, and so whenever we say to God, God, if we're singing a worship song, uh, Lord, I love you, in a sense, in in the context and flow of our relationship, what we're really saying is, I love you too, because He's already told us He loves us, right? First John, we love Him because He first loved us. His love came first, our love for Him comes second. And so it is with our service to God. He first creates, sustains, and serves us, and then we return some worship and service to Him. That is the uniqueness of our God. And we've already seen this in previous chapters in Isaiah. Uh, For instance, when we were in Isaiah 46, I preached all of Isaiah 46, and we saw this. Let me read to you a few verses from there. In Isaiah 46, Isaiah gives the people a contrast between the gods of uh, the Babylonians, Bel and Nebo, and Yahweh. The, The entire chapter is set up to make a contrast between the gods of the Babylonians and the God of Israel. And this is what Isaiah says in the first four verses. Bel has bowed down, Nebo stoops over, their images are consigned to the beasts and cattle, the things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stoop over, they've bowed down together, they could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity." Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age I will be the same, and even to your graying years I will bear you. I have done it. I will carry you. I will bear you. I will deliver you. What is the contrast between the Babylonian gods and Yahweh. Well, the Babylonian gods are burdensome to their people, but Yahweh is a burden-bearing God. Again, He says to His people, I, you've been born by Me. From birth, I've carried you. Uh, to your graying years, I will bear you. I will carry you. I will deliver you. In contrast, Bel and Nebo ask their people to carry around their images on carts. They make themselves a burden, but Israel's God is a burden-bearing God. And though these passages are given in an old covenant context, what they teach is still true in our own day. Consider with me, for example, salvation. What does the New Testament teach about salvation? Uh, And how does that contrast our God with the other gods that are out there in the contemporary world? What do the other world religions teach? Well, they teach that if you work hard enough, you can make it to paradise or nirvana, or Valhalla, or whatever it is that, whatever their conception of heaven is, right? But we have a God who works on our behalf in salvation, and that's clearly taught in the New Testament. 
Uh, Let me give you one example. In Mark chapter 10, there's a scene where James and John come and show some great initiative and ambition and ask Jesus if they can sit on His right and left hand in His coming kingdom. They ask for the most preeminent positions in His coming kingdom. And Jesus says to them, I'm really paraphrasing here. I'm not doing it justice. But Jesus basically says to them, I don't make those assignments. My Father does. And the other ten disciples, hearing what James and John did, they become indignant. And, and this is what Jesus says to the other ten disciples who are indignant. Uh, he says in uh, Mark 10, uh, or Mark tells us, calling the other ten to Himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. People in the world know how to be great. You climb the ladder. You achieve something amazing. You, you get that important title or position. You get lots of employees under you who ser- serve you and your vision for the company. You have a big entourage. That's the way the world does it. But Jesus says, it's not going to be this way among you. Jesus didn't come to gather employees to exercise authority over. That's not His primary greatness. His primary greatness is that He had the title and position and glory in heaven and left it all voluntarily uh, to come to earth and not only serve us, but to become a ransom for us from our sin. His ransom for us on the cross is Isaiah 64.4 written in blood. And so, I ask you, brothers and sisters, Who has seen a God like this, who not only works for His people, but does the hardest, most painful work, the work of being crucified? Show me. You can can come up. This isn't rhetorical. You can come up after the worship service. Show me if there's some God that I'm missing out there. None of the other gods of the world does this. None of the gods of Islam, uh, the God of Islam, and none of the gods of the Eastern religions do this. The gods of Hinduism don't do this. The pagan gods of old didn't serve their people. The contemporary uh, gods of the animistic uh, tribal religions in the world, they don't serve their people. Only Christianity has a God who sends His Son to save uh, the world and to serve us. Only Christianity has a Savior who tells you, I've come to lay down my life for you. I'm not asking you to serve me or for you to lay down your life for me. I lay down my life for you. Will you trust me? Will you have me as your God? Or will you insist that you're so virtuous you don't need a Savior? Will you have me as your God? Or will you insist on some kind of self-salvation scheme that if you achieve it, you can take some pride in? Uh, that, that is not, that, that's what our Lord is calling us to right? And uh, this message about a God who serves us, it's really good news, but it is the death of our pride. And I think that's, you know, you look at it objectively and you think, wow, this, this should be good news for everybody. But I think one reason sometimes we bristle at it in our flesh is because 
we want to save ourselves, or we, we are offended at the thought of thinking we need a Savior. And so, this is good news, but is the death of our pride. But really, the death of our pride, if you're dealing with reality, and if, if you're reading through Scripture and seeing what it says about God and mankind and His creation, the death of our pride begins long before Christ's ransoming sacrifice. It begins just with the reality of all the things we can't do for ourselves. Let me illustrate. Um, if everything that you needed in life was provided by your own effort or, or provided by your effort with some help from other people, right? Because when human beings, when, when we unite and we, and we can work together without fighting and arguing, when we can actually work together uh, to achieve a goal, we can do amazing things. And so, if everything you needed in life you could either accomplish yourself or accomplish in concert uh, with working with other people, then I would preach people from this pulpit. I would say, let people be exalted, right? Uh, let the communities that are productive, that are a good example to the rest of us of, of what humans can do if they put their mind to it, let those communities be magnified. To human beings, be glory and honor and praise and authority now and forever. That's what I'd preach from up here. But that doesn't work, and it doesn't work with reality. Let me ask you some questions just to illustrate. Did you work to create yourself? Did you knit yourself together in your mother's womb? Does your effort, combined with some help from others, supply the earth with drinking water? Did, do you, in concert with our community, supply to all people life and breath and every good thing? Can you, by your own effort, make atonement for your own sins? Or uh, by you, can you, by your own effort, give resurrection bodies to other people who will never age or get sick or die again? Can you so purify your soul and the souls of your loved ones that in the age to come, you and they will never sin again? The answer to all these questions is no. All the things you need the most and love the best, you didn't do. Your work is not decisive in these issues. God's work is. And His work is unique when compared to the other gods. It's also unique when compared to what human beings can accomplish. God helps those who wait for Him uniquely, but He also helps those who wait for Him competently. Um, I don't know about you but I don't like incompetent work. And I need to calm down and not be too critical, right, because I know we, we live in an imperfect world with imperfect people, and everything man-made breaks and needs constant maintenance. But, but every now and then, we get work done here at the church, and the deacons do their level best to find companies with workmen who will do the work well, but sometimes they do poor work. They do shoddy work. Or uh, a few years ago, I, I had a handyman. I paid a handyman to do some work on our old siding on our house, and he fixed the siding in such a way that it looked fixed when it came time for me to pay him, 
but it wasn't actually fixed, I found out later. And that kind of thing just, it drives me nuts. And, and part of it is just human imperfection, right? Uh, people can be incompetent at their work for a number of reasons. Maybe they mean well, but they're not strong enough. Maybe they intend well, but they don't have the knowledge, right? Every trade and every career is knowledge intense, and, and maybe they're a rookie, and they're working on your air conditioning system, and they just need a little bit more experience, and they'll learn the tricks of the trade. Or maybe, maybe they do have all the knowledge and skill they need, but they don't like the company. They, don't, they, they resent their boss. They don't care about the reputation of the company, so they just sort of put in subpar work. But that's not the way it is with our God when He helps those who wait for Him. God is zealous for the name of the company called God. He's jealous uh, and has a passion for His own glory and fame, and He has all the knowledge and wisdom and strength necessary to help those who wait for Him. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, he says it this way, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God never fails to accomplish the help He sets out to do for His people. His work is always competent, perfectly done, and perfectly timed. He accomplishes the help He intends to for those who wait for Him. But there is an important clarification we need to make about this help, uh, and it is this. It happens on you, His terms, not yours, and it happens in His timing, not yours. The help He gives is given, uh, and it's, it's timed with your best long-term spiritual interests at heart. Uh, God won't be your sugar daddy. He won't be the errand boy for all your wandering desires. He doesn't say yes to every request of His sons and daughters, and part of that is because He loves us, right? Like a good parent, He's not trying to spoil us. He's trying to work on our character. And that leads to a third point that's very, very important that I want to make here, and it is that God helps those who wait for Him in wisdom, right? Think about it this way. An important part of following Jesus isn't just confessing your sin and your need for Jesus as a Savior, it's also making confessions like these. It's confessing, God knows me better than I know myself. God knows what's best for me better than I know what's best for me. God has a better plan for me than the plan I like to choose for myself. That's part of the humble confession we need to make as followers of Jesus. And if I may speak from personal experience about God's wisdom, uh, I would say it this way. Though God gives all of us good gifts and created pleasures to be enjoyed, it sure seems to me like He cares uh, a lot more about my sanctification than my comfort. It just does. His plan seems to, like, keep getting in the way that I'd like to entertain myself. I just, I don't, it, that just seems to be uh, in my life. Uh, here, here's another thing. Though He has given me responsibilities to do, it's a privilege to be a pastor. He's given me work and responsibilities to get done as His image bearer on earth. It sure seems to me like He cares a lot more about me learning to be dependent on Him than helping me with my delusion that I can control everything in my world. And it's really like off-putting. I want to think I can control everything, and it's like He keeps putting me in situations where I see I have to be dependent on Him. And that's part of His wisdom. He helps those who wait for Him, but it's in His timing, 
according to His definition of what's best for them. So, our God helps those who wait for Him uniquely among the gods. He helps them competently, and He helps them wisely. But there is a prerequisite for the help talked about in this verse. Uh, And if you're a critical thinker, some of my earlier comments might have bothered you, right? Because while I was trying to make the point about how everything that we need the most and love the most we didn't do for ourselves, I used a whole slew of illustrations uh, of things God does to help people, like giving them life and breath and sustaining them and giving them good gifts. Those are illustrations of things God does, helps He gives for people who don't know Him, love Him, or wait for Him, right? Uh, Earlier, I quoted Paul to the Athenians about how God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God is currently giving life and breath and good gifts to people who don't love Him, acknowledge Him, or wait for Him. Uh, So, and we would call that common grace. So, the question then becomes, well, then what kind of work is Isaiah 64, 4 talking about? This must be some kind of special help for those who wait for Him. And the way I would define it is, if you've been paying attention as we've gone through Isaiah, the special helps that God has been giving to those who wait for Him have been helps like redeeming them from their sins and empowering them to live righteous lives. When it comes to the physical troubles of life, the help that He's been giving those who wait for Him in Isaiah has been either delivering people from the trouble they're in or giving them the grace to go through that trouble in such a way that when they get out on the other side, the trouble was actually used uh, to grow their faith and sanctify their souls. So, the help referred to here uh, in my interpretation is God's special saving, adopting, strengthening, preserving, and joy-giving help to those who wait on Him. So, if that's how God helps those who wait for Him, uh, what does it mean to wait on Him, and how could we grow in it? Well, uh, we've encountered this idea of waiting on the Lord before in Isaiah. And in the past, uh, I've told you, and, and you probably could pick this up just by reading the text, usually the idea of waiting on God appeared in sentences or paragraphs where the main thought of the paragraph was, trusting in God or hoping in God. It's very closely connected to trusting God, hoping in Him. Pastor Smedley Yates has written a book all about what it means to wait on the Lord. It's mercifully thin, Uh, but this is his definition. I totally commend this book to you. Uh, This is his definition of what it means to wait on God. Waiting on God is faith expressed in persevering obedience while trusting God to work all things according to His perfect plan in His perfect time. Or, put mathematically, waiting on God is trust multiplied by time. I'd probably put it this way. Waiting on God is trusting and obeying Him consistently over the long haul, even when you don't know what the outcome of of the trouble you're dealing with will be. So, if that's what it means to wait on God, how can we grow in waiting on Him? Well, I have four suggestions. Number one, when you encounter trouble, pause and pray. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. You don't have to mark off a day for fasting in your calendar, but just pause and confess. Uh, Confess your need, confess your inability, confess your dependence on God, and ask for His help. Now, that seems like a pretty basic… that seems like a very obvious 
uh, application that a pastor would give, right? But I give it because this is hard for us. It's hard for us because of our sinful nature. We, we want to believe that we can be independent from God. We want to do it ourselves. So often, uh, our first instinct is to try and design our own solution. And this is where I would confess to you, you would think that being a pastor, I've been a pastor here nine years, you would think that being a pastor and being in full-time ministry would help so that my gut instinct, whenever I encounter trouble, would be pausing to pray. But you know what? It's not. I want to, I'm a fix-it guy, and so immediately I start strategizing in my own way, in my own power, my own wisdom about how we could fix this or deal with this problem. And it, it's just, I think part of it is just we have very independent natures. We want to design our own solutions. And let's be honest, brothers and sisters, I think this is a very human thing. I think Christians all over the world in every culture probably struggle with this. But let's be honest, being American doesn't help because Americans are productive, efficient people, right? We're a get-it-done, fix-it-now, make-it-happen people, and we're proud of it. And, and when the Lord comes to someone like that and says, I need you to trust me, and I'm not telling you when it's going to be fixed. You need to trust me, and if you design your own solution, it's going to backfire on you. We hate that. I hate that. It just drives me nuts. Uh, I have a hard time with that, and that's part, part because I'm not as mature as I should be, and I don't trust the Lord as much as I… And so, we struggle with that. We don't like uh, forces that are more powerful than us and outside of our control having to admit we don't have as much control as we want and having to wait on the Lord. Uh, it's hard to repent of self-reliance and wait on the Lord, but I think it's also been made harder because we're an impatient people. In contrast to the Christians who lived a century ago, we have fast food, instant coffee, instant breakfast, right? Uh, uh, streaming, we can stream any show we want on demand. We have microwaves to heat things up instead of take in, in like a minute, uh, instead of taking a half hour to bake it in an oven. We have instant messaging, right? Uh, compared, it, just in our daily lives, there is much less waiting than there was for Christians who lived in America a century ago. And what it does is it changes our perception of reality, and it makes us impatient people in the spiritual… in the physical realm, I love these conveniences, right? I'm not like, I'm not anti any of those things. It actually makes life a lot more convenient, and I like pain-free, trouble-free, convenient, comfortable living. But spiritually, it, it, it warps our perception of how long things should take, and in the spiritual realm, there aren't a lot of quick fixes that are overnight and one and done. You can't fix every spiritual problem efficiently with a simple technique or a simple spiritual hack. Uh, you have to cultivate uh, the right uh, life spiritually in the soul, and pausing to pray is a good start. Second, choose to believe the promises of God while you wait for Him. We've talked about this before, right? It's not enough to just know what the promises of God are. You have to choose to believe in them in the middle of the difficulty, and it can be agonizing but you have to choose to believe in the promises of God and trust Him while you're waiting for the outcome. Third, obey God while you wait. Sometimes there's work God is calling you to do on the problem, and you know that your work will not be 100% decisive in the outcome, but it could help 
Other times, you can't do anything. Like, you get zero input, zero influence. You can't affect the change that needs to be made, and you just have to wait on Him. But whether you, whether you have some work to do or you're forced to just wait on Him, regardless, God is still calling you to obey His calling on your life in the middle of your waiting. So, do the next right thing. Do what you know He's calling you to do while you wait. And then fourth, my fourth suggestion, suggestion is uh, Pastor Smedley Yates has written a short book on wait. Um, his definition of waiting on God and how you can grow in it is much fuller and richer than what I can give you here this morning, and so I highly recommend this book to you if this is a subject that you're interested in. Well, allow me to close by saying, praise God for Isaiah 64, 4. Praise God for the fact that Jesus didn't come to be served by His worshipers, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for us. Praise God that He helps those who can't help themselves, but wait for Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we believe that You are good, wise, and loving, and that Your timing is perfect. Help our unbelief. Please give us the grace to wait on You with patience and persevering trust and obedience. In the ransoming name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.